Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And this week we are talking about a very ancient creature, a creature that's, that's potent with symbolism and power, and then when you get down and analyze its biology, it's, it's even more amazing. And yet somehow I have had a terrible habit of not really giving these animals a, a second glance um, or, or any kind of a deeper look uh, in all my time um, just reading about stuff. I know. And, yeah, they are potent with symbolism, and they're potent with poo. And they turn yeah. out to be really interesting little characters who are doing a number of clever things with feces. Yeah, we're, of course, talking about dung beetles. And really, I mean, you can take any lead in you want with these animals. You you into mummies, you into Egyptology, dung beetles. Are you into poop and poop-related science? Dung Dung beetles. beetles. I mean, that covers, I think, at least 65% of the listeners right there. If you're you're not into mummies, then you're into poop. One of the two. Oh, yeah. And I guess the subset of this would be, like, you into dancing on your poop? Dung beetles. Yeah, you into, or maybe you want a space angle. There's a space angle coming up too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. dung beetles really have it all, and and I feel bad for not really, not really giving them a you know a second look this whole time. Even though you know I've definitely been fascinated by uh, various uh, uh, Egyptian topics in the past, and and you see the scarab beetle everywhere. And for some reason, I never thought, hey, maybe I should look into the, the symbolism of that scarab beetle. I'm always more distracted by any of the other um, items in the, the rich iconography. Yeah, ancient Egyptians, they, they really exalted dung beetles because they witnessed them doing two things, which really capti- captivated ancient Egyptian imagination. And it overlaid this more sort of poetic interpretation of these two things that they saw these dung beetles doing. First, they saw them rolling dung balls, right? Mm-hmm. And they were like, hmm, this is very interesting. And we've all seen video of this. It pops up in just about every animal documentary ever because it is, it's fascinating and kind of humorous to watch them pedal it with their, their hind legs. Yeah. And second, they observed these dung beetles dancing on top of it. And they thought, hmm, maybe this is a kind of worshiping of the sun. Mm-hmm. And then they put it together with, huh, that, that dung rolling could be linked with nocturnal activity of Capri, the god of the rising sun. So this scarab beetle god was believed to push the setting sun along the sky in the same manner as the beetle with his ball of dung. All right, so they saw sort of a, a, a cosmic uh, model in what the, uh, the, the scarab beetle is doing. Mm-hmm. Because he already had this this idea, this story of this god rolling the sun across the, the horizon, right? Mm-hmm. They see these little guys doing it in miniature, and they think, ah, yes. And moreover, unbeknownst to ancient Egyptians, larvae might be laying inside of some of those balls of dung. And what would happen <clears throat> is they would see this completely fully formed uh, beetle emerge from the ball. And they didn't realize that the, the larvae was undergoing a complete metamorphosis within that ball. So, again, they were ascribing these sort of magical qualities to this beetle and saying, ah, this must be some sort of rebirth. Ah, so they sort of saw it as kind of a spontaneous generation kind of scenario where the, the young were just emerging from the, the ball of dung. Yeah, and it be, they uh, began to symbolize rebirth. Yeah, and so this apparently becomes a prominent... Uh, funerary decoration throughout the the New Kingdom, which went from about uh, 1550 
uh, to 1070 BCE. And it's during uh, that time that you see all these uh, scarab amulets placed over the heart of uh, of a mummified uh, individual. The interesting thing about these heart scarabs is that they were essentially kind of a a magical hack, like a, a spell intended to just give you a little uh, leg up in, in the afterlife. Because we've we've discussed before, I think we went into it in the the problem of hell a bit, where we're mm-hmm. talking about various models of the afterlife. Um, the the cosmology of ancient Egypt was 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 really rich, and they have this this really uh, elaborate afterlife. And there's a, a judgment that takes place where your 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 soul, your heart is weighed against the feather of truth. Mm-hmm. Now. You'd have to feel pretty sure about yourself to, to go into that that scenario uh, and, and and feel that you're gonna you're gonna triumph. And uh, as you as we see in in all the various funerary practices of ancient Egypt, uh, those with the power to do so were all about uh, preparing themselves because uh, the afterlife is going to be dangerous. It's going to be complex. You need your you need your your uh, your servants. You need your goods. You need spells. Mm-hmm. You need all of these things. So you're gonna so you're gonna enter into uh, your sarcophagus with this heart scarab. That will serve to give you just a a little bit of a like a plus one or a plus two during that trial. Yeah, if your heart wasn't so pure, perhaps this talisman, this this scarab, would help to write things when your heart was weighed against this feather. Yeah, otherwise you're annihilated. There's no there's no even uh, going to uh, to hell. You're just you're just gone. Isn't there like a little animal next to or a little creature next to the scale that gobbles up the heart? If it's, yes, if it's uh, not. A worthy one? Yeah, the crocodile-headed, uh, I believe his name was uh, Amit. I may have that wrong. My yeah. apologies to uh, the crocodile-headed uh, devourer of souls, uh, if that is the case. So all of that should give everybody a good idea of th- these humble dung beetles. And even though they have a rich past in ancient Egypt, today we give them nary a thought. And we should, because they have been rolling these dung balls for something like 30 million years and um, they have been astronomers in a sense, and we'll get to that in mm-hmm. a moment. Uh, but they are pretty amazing. Let's look at some of their more physical attributes. Yeah, and I want to add that they're they're just about everywhere. You'll find dung beetles of one type or another on every continent except Antarctica, because obviously they would have a, a tough time of it in Antarctica. And in their use of dung, they play a vital role in dealing with uh, with our waste. They are they are very important. Uh, species, so it's, yeah. it's not, they're not just mere curios that just roll some dung around. They play an important uh, role in uh, in the environment. Yeah, we'll look at a specific example of that later too. So yeah, there are more than five thousand species of dung beetles, and a uh, typical dung beetle appearance is a grooved shield, large, strong front limbs for digging and fighting, and elongated back legs for holding onto dung balls while rolling them along. They've got some long flying wings that are folded. They're under hard wing covers. And some of the well-known families in the dung beetle superfamily are the stag, bess, and scarab beetles. Uh, their length can range from about 0.004 inches to 2.4 inches. And uh, they have six legs in total, usually brown in color, but some of them can be brightly colored. Yeah, some of them are quite beautiful. In fact, the uh, the rainbow scarab. Uh, actually has this uh, this iridescent look to it. It looks like a piece of jewelry. Yeah, they, they can be really gorgeous. And uh, very strong, the male Anthophagus taurus can pull 1,141 times its own body weight. Now, that is the equivalent of an average person pulling six double-decker buses full of people. Whoa. So these these are powerful creatures. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, compared to their size, obviously. Indeed. Yeah. And another interesting fact is that they are committed parents. And this is rather surprising because when we, when you think about the insect world, uh, if, if, at least if you're like me, you tend to think of just, uh, from a human perspective, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a cruel, um, just heartless scenario. I mean, there's, there's no such thing as insect, uh, politics. Uh, t- uh, to uh, to quote uh, Dr. Brundle. But uh, with these uh, particular uh, creatures, with the dung beetles, one or both of the parents stay with the larva until they are mature, which can take up to four months. And, uh, and yeah, this is quite unusual in the insect world. Yeah, it almost, I mean, you can get really like, uh, you can really project some humanness onto oh, yeah. this. Uh, because it seems almost like a little courting thing here. This is from the San Diego Zoo. It says, after a chance encounter at a dung pad, <laughs> male and female rollers establish a pair bond. The male offers the female a giant-sized brood ball of feces. If she accepts it, they roll it away together, or the female rides on top of the ball. Ah. Well, they are, it is... A refreshingly sweet relationship uh, compared to a lot of other uh, uh, models of insect courtship that come to mind where everyone's getting their, their head chewed off. That's what I was saying, limbs <laughs> torn off. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and they'll find a soft place to bury the ball before mating. Yeah, and, and then they'll care for it. It's not just a matter yeah. of just pumping your larva into the, the belly of a of some sort of a host creature. There, there's almost, again, to project kind of a family structure here. Yeah, and certain cephalodesmias, dung beetles, even mate for life. Wow. It's so beautiful. Now, I know what, what everyone's thinking out there. You're, you're thinking, I know I didn't come into a, an episode about dung beetles to hear about their family. Uh, <laughs> I want to hear about the consumption of poo. How does that work? How does that make sense, right? Because it's a waste product, you, you might easily say. This is something that another animal has, has sucked the life out of, and then this is the husk of that, uh, of that, of that consumption. So, so what is there for a dung beetle to even consume? Well, quite a lot just because it's just i mean one the important thing to take home here is that even though it is a waste product uh not all of the nutrients um are are missing particularly when you look at at herbivores i mean uh, herbivore uh poop is going to be you know consist mostly of undigest uh, vegetation right so you've got a lot of plant material there Mm -hmm. and you have water content as well oh yeah which is going to be crucial in your dry environments now, most species subsist almost exclusively on the excrement of other organisms, though they can sometimes feast on carrion, leaf litter, mushrooms, or decaying fruit. Right. Never human flesh, just straight up carnivorous uh, scarab beetles. If you saw that in The Mummy, the movie, um, don't take that to the bank. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Um, they can have really specific appetites for poop. So you can't just assume that you put a you know big pile of poop in front of them and they'll just roll away with it and be happy with it. And in Australia in 1778, they found this out the hard way. And the reason for that is that they had imported a bunch of cows and other large livestock that were not indigenous to the area. Oh, and they just well, these things are going to poop everywhere. And they thought, well, the, the scarab beetles, the dung beetles will take care of this, right? Sure. But this the, the <laughs> dung beetles were like, no way. I don't know what this is. It doesn't smell right to me. And they basically turned their noses up at it. What happened is that in that part of Australia, they had a huge infestation of flies and other parasites that moved in and said, well, I'll take it. Uh. And they ended up having to import uh, dung beetles that would eat the excrement of these cows and other large livestock. Well, that's just another page uh, from a familiar book when we start messing around with uh, the ecological structure. Uh, then uh, things are out of whack. A little more cold water because the, the bath is too hot, a little more hot because it's too cold, and then the the, the bath is overflowing. Yeah, there's just yeah. one factor. Yeah, 
Cascade. <clears throat> Indeed. Now, they also, uh, they also sort of like a certain scent profile to their dung. And a lot of that has to do with the diet of the organism. Yeah, well, they, they like it strong, correct? They do. In fact, many species of dung beetle prefer omnivore dung, such as human dung or, yeah. uh, or m- your monkey dung. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, this is actually going to be more odorous dung, stinkier dung. Yeah, because it does have that plant material and it has the meat and it has all of the bacteria that is breaking it down and making it very smelly. But how do we know that they prefer it? Well, some very committed scientists, including researcher Wyatt Hoback, a professor at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, they use these pitfall traps, large buckets buried in the ground, and it contained feces from a bunch of different species or a dead, rotting rat in the bottom. Uh, carrion or the remains of dead animals uh, can also serve as a food source for dung beetles, as we had said before. So the researchers wanted to compare this to the dung samples. And two summers of work in 2010 and 2011, the team captured more than 9,000 dung beetles of 15 different species. And of the dung samples, human and chimpanzee feces, both omnivores here, attracted the most dung beetles. The dead rat came in next, <laughs> followed by pig droppings, uh, then poop from the carnivorous species, which included uh, lion and tiger dung, and then dead last herbivores. Which again brings us back to the uh, the Australian uh, example where we had all this uh, herbivore poop just setting around and the dung- these yeah. were not the right dung beetles to eat it. And in a sense, I guess you could say that some of these beetles are playing with their poop, but really this is a matter of survival. It just looks like playing. Because they're going to do one of three things with these balls of poop, they're going to roll it, they're going to roll it into a tunnel, mm-hmm. or they're going to dwell within it. Okay, so we have the rollers, the tunnelers, and the dwellers. The rollers are out there rolling this ball of uh, of excrement just across the across the the ground, and those are the ones that we often see in these uh, compelling nature videos. The uh, tunnelers are, are taking that ball of poop and they're going underground with it, mm-hmm. and then the dwellers are dwelling within the poop mound. Yeah, they're saying, yeah. why not? I mean, this is a food source; I can live inside of it, nice and cool. Yeah, so we have. All of these are dung beetles, but they found sort of different levels of exploitation of this resource, the resource being poop. Yeah, and again, we should mention, too, like, not only is this a food source for them, but they can also uh, make a nest of it to transfer their eggs to. So in this other sense, though, they are using these dung balls to cool off with. And mm-hmm. uh, it seems kind of odd at first, but now consider, you know, the species that are hanging out in... Sub-Saharan Africa in the desert where that that ground can get up to 60 degrees Celsius and get really, really hot. And there's lots of dung beetles competing for this dung. And they've got to roll it as fast as they can. And yet they have some really clever ways of trying to cool themselves. So so how do they cool themselves off in this this hot environment with something that you just don't you don't think of poop as having any cooling elements. It's, you, if anything, you think of it as being steaming and hot. Well, researchers Jochen Smolka et al., they, they studied how they cooled themselves off, and they detailed it in the paper, Dung Beetles Use Their Dung Balls as a Mobile Thermal Refuge. And this is, this is from the beginning of the paper, and I just love it. It says, quote, using infrared thermography 
and behavioral experiments, we show here that dung beetles use their dung balls as a mobile thermal refuge onto which they climb to cool down while rolling across hot soil. We further demonstrate that the moist ball functions not only as a portable platform, but also as a heat sink, which effectively cools the beetle as it rolls or climbs onto it. Now, I'm not going to get I'm not going to get deep into this study here, but I do want to tell you that if you look into the study, you will see where they have slipped these little socks onto their feet. Oh, my goodness. And their hind legs um, as they are rolling the balls, because they've done various things to try to determine how much heat is uh entering on the surface of their feet and how they're cooling themselves off. But essentially, as they're pressing onto that ball, which is a lot cooler Mm -hmm. than the soil, then they're cooling off from it there. They're also doing this, what looks to be a dance Ah, on top of the ball. And indeed, to the uninformed uh, eye, it definitely looks like they're just stopping, getting on top of the ball, and dancing around. But uh, but really, you could uh, you you should think of it more in terms of like a sailor climbing up the rigging of a ship to see what's on the horizon, uh, because that, as it turns out, is is key to the whole thing. Because when do when do they actually climb atop and do their dance? They do it when they're uh, when they're first uh, leaving the, uh, the 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 pile of poop, the main uh, deposit of poop. They do it when they uh, encounter an obstacle. So, in other words, they're doing it when they need to see what the lay of the land is. Where are they taking this ball? What is their their ultimate goal with it? And they are possibly doing it to cool themselves because oh, yes, they yes. found that um, that it usually happens at the hottest point during the midday heat. So they see more incidences of them getting up on the ball and doing this little jig. And yeah, some of it though is like a little lookout to see like who are my competitors here? Who's gaining on me? Um, but any little advantage that they can get like that to cool themselves off for the briefest of moments helps them when they are making this trek across the soil. And by the way, this is a straight line that mm-hmm. they are rolling these balls into. And along the way, they're often having to deal with rival dung beetles fighting them for their, uh, their, their, their precious ball. Which is another thing just to keep in mind about their uh, their journey. Yeah, and and again, they've got to stay on that straight path because it turns out this is very intentional to have this straight path, and they may actually be using the Milky Way to orient themselves. And this experiment is pretty adorable. Yeah, this one uh, was published uh, in 2013 uh, in Current Biology, and it actually earned a, uh, the 2013 uh, Ig Nobel Prize, uh, which doesn't mean that it's, again, we've talked about the Ig Nobel Prizes before, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily um, useless science or that it's uh, you know completely silly, but maybe it just has a silly element to it, such as dung beetles wearing hats. Earlier they were wearing socks in a different experiment. <laughs> this time they're wearing hats. Because how are you going to test uh, their navigational skills? Are they de- are they depending upon uh, the night sky for their movements or the, the orientation of the Milky Way? Uh, you have to put a little hat on there, a little, little visor to keep them from looking up. Indeed. So what did they do? They set up an outdoor circular arena full of sand, and they put the dung beetles in the middle with their ball of dung. And they looked at the path they took to get to the edge of their arena. Now, half of those dung beetles could see the starry night, no moon, by the way. And the other half had those little hats on that you just described. Now, the hats only covered the dorsal eyes, the ones on the top of their heads. And the ventral eyes were uncovered, so they could still see that. So, of course, those who were behatted had a hard time navigating. They didn't have the stars to help them navigate. And they tested this again 
by placing the Beatles in a planetarium. Inside an actual planetarium. Inside an actual planetarium. It is brilliant, right? Because they can manipulate um, the planetarium. They can make it completely dark. They can just have uh, a full moon, no moon, or the Milky Way. And they found that the Beatles could navigate with the stars or just with the Milky Way, which is, again, a diffuse band of light surrounding a density of stars. And it's not just uh, starlight that is important to them. Uh, in 2003, researchers uh, found that one species of dung beetle, the African Scarabius zambanius, uh, navigates by using polarization patterns in moonlight. And this was actually the, the first proof that any animal can use polarized moonlight for orientation. Now, you had mentioned that competition is really fierce, and uh, I just wanted to mention that according to dung beetle expert John Freehand, quote, the behavior of the beetles was much misunderstood until the pioneering studies of Jean-Henri Fabre. For example, Fabre corrected the myth that a dung beetle would seek aid from dung beetles when confronted by obstacles. This is what was thought at first. Oh, because they probably, he probably observed a, like three or four dung beetles pushing on a single ball of dung. Yeah. They're, of course, no one's trying to help anybody in that scenario. Uh, they're just all fighting for the resources. Exactly. And uh, Freehand says, by painstaking observations and experiments, Fabre found that this seeming helpers were, in fact, robbers awaiting an opportunity to steal the roller's food source. Now, think about this next statistic. I'm talking about a 1.5 kilogram or a 3.3 pound load of elephant dung that gets decimated by 16,000 dung beetles in two hours. And this is from Dr. John Caponera in his book, who was describing how very efficiently these beetles will bury, eat, or just roll away all the dung, and just how many competitors there are for it. Yeah, that's an incredible stat, and it really does underline uh, their important role as a recycler uh, in the environment, especially when you have megafauna going around just completely unloading uh, <laughs> you know, all over the place. Indeed. So what does this mean? It means that when it comes to, uh, I don't know, what would you say, like, uh, to getting that ball to, to obtaining the prize, you're going to have to engage in a little bit of combat. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, what keeps coming to mind for me when we keep talking about this, I keep thinking about Mad Max, uh, particularly the Road <laughs> Warrior, where the, yeah. the commodity that everyone's yeah. interested in is gasoline. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. so everyone's after the gasoline and all these souped up vehicles with mm-hmm. spikes on the front and Gatling guns and grappling hooks and what have you. And, uh-huh. and they're just roaring across this desert environment. And I, I see a lot of that in the Scarab Beetle. There's a precious commodity at hand. There's a lot of competition for that commodity. And in order to uh, to obtain it, to defend it, and to actually do something with it, you've, you've got to arm up. You do. And this is where it becomes so important, this, uh, you know, again, a 30-million-year odyssey with poop. Yes. For, for dung beetles, that they actually evolve horns to compete for dung. Now, Nicola Watson and Lee Simmons of the University of Western Australia in Perth, what did they do to find out uh, how important horns are? Well, they pitted female dung beetles, Omphophagus uh, Sagittarius, against each other in a race for dung. And they were matched for body size. They were all in the same weight bracket, I suppose. Um, females with bigger horns managed to collect more dung and provide, you know, better for their offspring. And they published their findings in the March 2010 edition of the Proceedings of the Royal Society. 
So again, here you have this idea. Well, you know, if you if you've evolved to have the the biggest um, pair of these horns, then perhaps you're going to be much better fit to fight off your competitors and provide for your family. Uh, the other interesting thing about the, uh, the the horns in this with this particular species from this study is that the female has a central horn arrangement like a rhino, mm-hmm. and again, they're they're much larger, uh, and then the male has like smaller kind of side-by-side devil horn uh, scenario going on. So it's not just a simply a matter of, oh, well, you know, one 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 uh, side of the uh, the species has small horns and the other one has big ones. It's like a, it's a different arrangement. It's a different morphology uh, that has has emerged uh, in the males versus the females with, with, with a different uh, purpose in mind. Yeah, and even the tunnelers will have different horns than the non-tunnelers. And it made me think about the antlers episode when we were talking about deer and uh, different species having different lengths and different ways to sort of tango with them. Yeah, I was uh, actually reading through uh, Douglas J. Imlin's uh, excellent book, Animal Weapons, which is all about uh, the evolution of uh, of things such as horns and antlers and other defensive mechanisms and the, sort of the arms race of evolution. Uh, and uh, he pointed out that uh, species that fight one-on-one often have elaborate horns and species that fight in chaotic uh, scrambles do not. So in, in the dung beetles, for instance, that dung beetle is out there on that uh, that ball of mm-hmm. excrement having to fight three or four at once, you'll see a less impressive display. But if it's one-on-one, particularly in a tunnel, that's where you'll see really crazy arrangements. Uh, Imlin says, burrows are probably the most widespread ecological situation leading to the evolution of extreme weapons. Uh, and this is because the, the tunnels are localized, they're readily defendable. And, uh, and, and indeed, some of these, uh, these arrangements are just really intense because you can imagine that, that tunnel environment. It's all about front loading your, uh, your weaponry and, and def- defending, uh, uh, the, the entrance at all costs. Well, and that makes sense. You're going to respond to it in a certain way, or I would say that biology and nature is going to respond to it in a certain way. And I was just even thinking back to the episode on left-handed people. And we were talking about the castle in Scotland. In which the, I believe it was the generations of, uh, of, uh, it was it soldiers there who were defending the castle. They were left handed and they had built the castle specifically so that they would have the advantage when they came around the corners. So oh, just thinking yes. about the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So in that same sense, here you see, you know, a kind of evolution or adaptation to try to be as effective as you possibly can. And in all of this, another thing to keep in mind uh, about that commodity, that precious commodity of dung, is that uh, uh, it loses its um, its power quickly. Uh, so anytime that the dung beetles are having to, to just pounce on it, they they have to they they have to take advantage of it quickly because it's going to lose its potency. It's going to lose its its right. value, and that's another reason why the elephant dung disappears so quickly because there's a there's a half life on this stuff. Indeed. Um, why there's not a Disney Pixar oh, film yeah. on this? I, I just don't know. Yeah, it seems like there's plenty there. I mean, just I mean, they're 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 already a little more comfy and a little more uh, relatable as organisms due to their their sort of family structure, if you right. will. They have this very animated thing that they do, pushing this ball around or living in tunnels. They're they're elaborate looking. There's a rich uh, mythology associated with them. It seems like you could just go wild. Yeah, and they're kind of romantic and starry-eyed, right? Yeah. You've got the astronomy going. Exactly. Yeah, they're looking up at the heavens in experiments. They're wearing socks and hats. I mean, really, what more could you ask for? Yeah, a dung beetle's life. That's what we need. All right. Um, you guys, 
If you are interested in finding out more about what we do and uh, other past episodes, you can visit StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's right. You'll find all the podcast episodes there. You'll find the blog posts, the videos, links out to our various social media accounts. And, uh, you know, on every landing page for at least the more recent episodes, we're going to make sure to include uh, links to related content on the site, as well as some links out to some of the more uh, uh, interesting and potent uh, uh, sources or just extra bits of content that we would like for you guys to explore. And if you guys have some thoughts on dung, beetle, mania, you can send them to us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 